You're listening to Time in the Word. If the law cannot bless us, then how can we receive God's blessing? This is the question Paul has been wrestling with throughout this letter. How do I stand in right relationship with God? What must I do to gain His favor? In a word, how can I be justified? There are two possibilities. Either I am justified by works of the law, or I am justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's answer is that justification comes only by faith and not by works. He has stated this before, but here he repeats it. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Galatians 3, 11-12 Justification cannot come by works of the law, it must come by faith. Luther rightly understood that only Christ can justify a sinner, and only through his cross. Paul explained it to the Galatians like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 The love of Christ is wondrous. He was crucified to remove the curse. Since we are no longer subject to the death penalty of the law, we can receive the promise of the gospel that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians 3.14 Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So the question is, if the law cannot bless us, then how can we receive God's blessings? And this is the question, I mean, think about this for a moment from Paul's vantage point. This is the question... Paul himself had been wrestling with throughout this letter. How do I stand in a right relationship with God? What must I do to gain His favor? In a word, how can I be justified? And there are two possibilities. Either I am justified by works of the law, or I am justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's answer is that justification comes only by faith and not by works. I mean, he has stated this before, but here he repeats it. Look at, look at verses 11 and 12 for a moment. That no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Clearly, justification cannot come by works of the law. It must come by faith. Faith and works sort of operate according to different principles. They are entirely different ways to live. One is by believing and the other one is by doing. 
If we live by faith, Paul says, we trust God to justify us through Jesus Christ. Hold your place here in Galatians chapter 3 for a moment and go to Acts chapter 13. He makes a very important, powerful statement in this passage in Acts. As Paul had been preaching on another occasion, notice what he says in chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who what? Believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In Christ, through Christ, forgiveness comes and you are freed from everything that you can't be freed from by the law of Moses. On the other hand, if we live by works, then we count our own contribution to make us fully acceptable to God. But we can't have it both ways. Believing, I mean, we're talking about justification. Believing and doing, in this sense, are mutually exclusive. We can't have them both. Either we trust God to justify us through faith, or we try to justify ourselves by works. Let me share with you how one reformer put it in reference to how contrary to these two ways to live by are. He said, and I quote, The law justifies him who fulfills all its commands, whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and rely on Christ alone. To be justified by our own merit and by grace of another are irreconcilable. You can't have them both. It's either by faith or by works. And Paul is very clear that by works no one is justified. And he, he illustrates these two life principles from the Old Testament. Verse 11, he quotes Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And to quote the entire verse, it's Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, this must have been a very important uh, statement or verse for Paul because this particular statement also shows up in Romans as Romans, the theme of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, in the original context, Habakkuk's words condemned the pride of the Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem. And the prophet accused them of self-confidence. But what Paul is saying is that this is not the way God wants his people to live. He wants them to live by faith. He wants us to live by faith. We, or the Galatians, we as Christians today, we are justified ones. We are the ones who have been declared righteous by Almighty God. Now they and we are to live by faith, as Abraham did. Instead of trusting in ourselves, or instead of trusting in themselves, the Galatians, they and we must trust God. And the point that Paul is making is that faith must characterize our relationship with God from beginning to end. So this verse from Habakkuk had a tremendous influence also in the life of Martin Luther. Luther encountered this particular verse in the monastery of Erfurt, though he didn't really initially understand what it meant. Later, 
we're told that Luther had gone through a very dark period of illness and depression during which he had imagined that the end of his life was very near. And we're told that Luther found himself repeating the words over and over again, and these were the words that he was repeating over and over again, the righteous will live by faith, and he continued to repeat that to himself. Not long after he recovered, Luther went to Rome, and he visited in Rome the church of St. John Lateran. The Pope had promised an indulgence forgiving the sins of any pilgrim who mounted its staircase. The staircase was alleged to have come from the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. Believing that, that the steps were stained with blood from Christ, pilgrims mounted those stairs often on their knees, pausing frequently to pray and kiss the holy staircase. The story continues as Martin Luther's son writes, and he says, as he repeated his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he seized his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Luther no longer believed that there was anything they could do to gain favor with God, and he began to live by faith in God's Son. Luther's son continues to say, As Luther himself said, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God, and I was angry with Him. But by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. What happened? Well, Luther rightly understood that the works of the law cannot justify, that one is justified by faith alone. When you think of the law, the law is a different way of living entirely. It operates based on a completely different principle. And to illustrate the life principle of the law, Paul quoted from the book of Leviticus, look at verse 12, the one who does them shall live by them. And it's interesting that in this, even in this short section of Scripture we're looking at, we see Paul referencing quite a bit of the Old Testament, right? We see him going back to Deuteronomy. We see him going back to Leviticus. We see him going back to Habakkuk. Because again, like I said previously, nothing that Paul was teaching was new. Justification has always been by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And to quote the original passage in its entirety, let me read it to you. That's Leviticus 18, 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the law, as found in Leviticus and elsewhere, operates on a completely different principle or on a completely different basis than faith does. The only blessing it has to offer is for those who keep it. As far as justification is concerned, the law is not for believers. It is only for doers. New Testament scholar uh, Thomas Schreiner offers this paraphrase to explain what Paul means. He says, salvation by works of the law is contrary to faith. For salvation by works of law means that the one who does them 
or the one who does the law will live by his obedience. When you encounter often uh, individuals who, who, who state they're Christians, but they tend to be extremely legalistic. If you watch them closely and you talk to them enough, you will find that their life as Christians is, is not a life that brings a great deal of peace and joy because it's become a religion that seems to require one to adhere perfectly to a law and with any violation of that there is the constant condemnation rather than the understanding that we live by faith and what the implications of that is. I mean this is the principle of law just do it but is it ever that easy? Can we ever just do it? If you do the law you are legally righteous and you will live. This implies that the law could save us if we could keep it. The trouble is, as this takes us back to the problem with the law in verse 10, no one can keep it. So there's no possible way that the law could justify anybody because nobody can keep the law perfectly. And that is what God's standard requires. Martin Luther later explained God's true way of justifying sinners like this, he said, and I quote, if you wish to placate me, and obviously God is, is God speaking, if you wish to placate me, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only son, who, has, who was born, who suffered, who was crucified, and who died for your sins, then I will accept you and pronounce you as righteous. Luther rightly understood that only Christ can justify and only through his cross. And Paul explained it to the Galatians like this. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now this verse, when you read verse 13, this verse is a reminder of the penalty first mentioned in verse 10. The penalty of the law, listen, the penalty of the law is the wrath of God. That is what each of us, that is what those who have placed their trust in Christ have been spared of, the wrath of God. God's law, as Paul already mentioned, and as he, you know, in reference in the Old Testament, God's law pronounces a curse on everyone who fails to keep it, a curse that we were all under. Therefore, if we're to be saved, the curse must be removed. The curse must be removed. And this is what Christ was doing on the cross, redeeming his people from the law's accursed penalty. The wrath that was due us, a wrath from which the unredeemed will never come out from under, was endured and experienced by Christ on that cross. It's the only way we could be redeemed. That word redemption comes from the marketplace and it refers to the payment of a price. In Paul's world, the word redeemed was most often used at the slave market where it referred to the purchase price for a slave. Sometimes a friend uh, uh, or a relative would buy a slave back from captivity and set him free. If that was the case, the, the slave would thus go be liberated through the payment of a ransom. But it's the only way he could do that. 
Now think about this, because this is where it really hits for me. Ordinarily, a ransom price is paid by the highest bidder. In the case of, of the redemption of God's children, in the case of our redemption, bound in slavery to sin, the price was the highest ransom of all. We have been redeemed by the very lifeblood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the New Testament speaks of the redemption of sinners, it customarily emphasizes redemption's costly price. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, or, but to serve, and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You yourselves, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In order to pay this priceless ransom for you and for me, the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure God's curse. Now to understand what that means, it helps us to know the Old Testament law for the execution of a criminal. Hold your place here in Galatians and once again go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 through 23, it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The point of hanging a criminal in this way was to expose his capital crime to public shame. Hoisting his body on a tree demonstrated that he was under God's curse. But he was not to be left on the tree overnight, for it would be an offense to God. Now imagine, I mean, we can understand, in a certain sense, the issue Jews or even the Judaizers had with Christianity. Think of it from their perspective, from their vantage point. Imagine how offensive Christianity was to the Jews. Because at the very heart of our message was a man hanging on a tree. The apostolic message was about a man who was so cursed by God that he was crucified on a cross on a tree. What's interesting that rather than concealing this fact, the apostles drew even more attention to it because it's, a cent it's central to, to the message. When Peter, for example, preached to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, listen to what he said. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed, and he doesn't stop there. How did you kill him? Hanging him on a tree. Imagine how that message would resonate with the Jews who understood what the Old Testament taught. Peter used the same word in his first epistle when he said in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body, didn't stop there, on the tree. Once again, when Paul spoke to the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, he described how Jesus was taken down from the tree. And at the same time, as they're proclaiming that, they are also proclaiming that the crucified Jesus is the Christ. To the Jews, it was absolute blasphemy. A cursed Messiah on a cursed tree. No wonder the gospel was a stumbling block to them. How can that be? 
I, I, I hesitate in saying this because I don't want to be misunderstood or be thought of saying something profane. But in the most shocking and yet perhaps the most accurate way, the apostolic message, when you think about it, and again, pardon the expression, but it, it just accurately in, it, it defines how this was coming across to, to the Jew. The, the message, the apostolic message was about a God-damned Messiah. That was the message. What could be more blasphemous than an alleged Messiah who was nailed, hung on a cross, a tree? I would, I would even venture to say that Paul himself probably struggled with this question. I mean, remember his background. What could account for Christ's death on a cross? It seems to be a real dilemma. It must have been somewhat of a dilemma for the Apostle Paul. A question that may have crossed his mind would have been something like, how could the only man who ever continued to do everything written in the book of the law be subjected to the curse? And I don't know if it came through his own studies of the scriptures or came by direct revelation or both, but Paul was given an amazing resolution, and we can't miss this. Look at verse 13 again. Christ redeemed us. Here's the answer to the question. How could the only man who ever continued to do everything written in the book of the law be subjected to the law's curse? Here is the resolution to that question. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming. By becoming a curse for us. It's the only way he it could be since he lived the perfect life. Christ came. God the Son came from glory for the sole purpose of being subjected to the curse of the law by becoming a curse so that we might be justified. Where is good works in this formula? What is my contribution to any of this? And not only to salvation, but to my security my eternal security. One New Testament scholar says, and I quote, the language here is startling, and he's referring to that verse, verse 13. The language here is startling, almost shocking. We should not have dared to use it. Yet Paul means every word of it. Paul meant every word because he understood what Christ was doing on the cross. You see, the death of Christ was a substitution, not an example, not whatever other theory of atonement you consider. It was a substitution. He was crucified in our place. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. When he took our sins upon himself, Christ also had to bear the curse of God, and thus becoming, as he says in verse 13, a curse for us. Christ lived a perfect life. He never sinned. I mean, his, his birth is important. His death is important. His resurrection is important. His ascension is important. But so is the life he lived. It was a perfect life, a sinless life. He never did anything in any way, in thought, in word, or, or deed that somehow violated the law of God. He lived the law perfectly. Yet the death penalty for breaking the law was executed on him. He was condemned by the very curses that were once shouted by the six tribes at Mount Ebal. The law's accursed penalty, 
the law's or curse penalty did not apply to Christ personally because he never broke the law. But God imputed our sins to his son. Let me, let me read you because it's worth reading Luther's explanation on this. He says the whole emphasis is on the phrase for us. For Christ is innocent so far as his own person is concerned. Therefore, he should not have been hanged from the tree. But because according to the law, every thief should have been hanged. Therefore, according to the law of Moses, Christ himself should have been hanged. For he bore the person of a sinner and a thief, and not of one, but of all sinners and thieves. For we are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ took all our sins upon himself, and for them he died on the cross. He's not acting in his own person now. Now he's not the Son of God born of the Virgin, but he is a sinner who has and bears the sin of Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor, and assaulter, of Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, and who caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord. In short, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body, not in the sense that he has committed them, but in the sense that he took these sins, committed by us, upon his own body, in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. When Christ took our sins upon himself, he was accursed. Not for his own sins, but for mine. For mine. I am forgiven. I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. And when God the Father looks upon me, he sees the righteousness of Christ in me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These things I write unto thee that ye may know that you have eternal life. How? Christ was accursed for me. The curse I deserved, the curse we deserved, was legally transferred from us to him. Luther described this as the quote-unquote fortunate exchange in which we trade our sin and the curse it deserves for the righteousness of Christ. Where is works? Where is the law? Where is obedience to the law? He said, so long as sin, death, and the curse remain in us, sin damns us, death kills us, and the curse curses us. But when these things are transferred to Christ, what is ours becomes His, and what is His becomes ours. Let us learn, therefore, in every temptation to transfer sin, death, the curse, and all the evils that oppress us from ourselves to Christ, and on the other hand, to transfer righteousness, life, and blessing from Him to us. Do you see how the just will live by faith? I mean, now perhaps we can begin to understand the meaning of Christ's cry of dereliction from the cross when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. You're accursed. When he hung on a tree, God the Son was accursed by God the Father. The law's curse is God's curse because the law is God's law. Thus Christ became an object of 
divine reprobation cursed by both God and by the law. The just live by faith. The love of Christ is wondrous. He died to remove the curse. He closes in verse 14 by saying that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. What? Through the law? Through works? No, through faith. That is the gospel.